Hello, this is Bob Groves, and we're back with another episode of the Provost podcast series that we label Faculty and Research. And uh, this week, we're treated by a, a chat with Keir Lieber. He's the director of the Center for Security Studies and the Security Studies Program and professor in the School of Foreign Service and the Department of Government. A lot of affiliations, all of these at Georgetown. His interests both in research and teaching, include nuclear weapons, deterrence, strategy, technology and the causes of war, U.S. national security policy, and international relations theory. As you might expect, he's a prolific scholar at Georgetown. The the most recent book is with Daryl Press, labeled The Myth of the Nuclear Revolution, colon, Power Politics in the Atomic Age. But he's the author of scores of articles in prominent journals in his field. He is indeed a very visible and influential member of our community. And as you might guess, he's been awarded uh, major fellowships from Brookings, uh, the Carnegie Corporation of New York, the Council of Foreign Relations, and several foundations. He received his PhD in political science from the University of Chicago, and he promised, or he asked me, he made me promise that I would note that he is a proud product of the District of Columbia Public Schools. So, Keir, welcome to this Thank conversation. Uh, I'm delighted to have you on this podcast. Thank you. And that last point is important because everything I learned about international politics and power politics, I discovered on the blacktop of Alice Steele Junior High School and Woodrow Wilson High School. There you go. There you go. Wonderful. We won't go back that far in this conversation unless you want to. But I I know all of our listeners are kind of curious of how people gain their initial interests and sort of the course of the development, the evolution of those interests. I think a lot of folks outside of academia and sometimes our students don't understand the course of focus, an intellectual focus that really propels us forward throughout a a whole lifetime. So give us your story. Well, okay, if you're not going to allow me to go back before high school, I'll begin at the end of high school in 1988. And that's, of course, an important time because it's the beginning of the end of the Cold War. So my college career, undergraduate career, was happened at the same time as the fall of the Soviet Union, the, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the end of the Cold War. So international affairs, the topic that I study, was front and center at a key part in my life. But I'd say that the, my development as a professor and scholar really began when I entered the University of Chicago in the fall of 1994 and found myself under the mentorship of Professor John Mearsheimer, who is arguably you know, the greatest international relations theorist of our time. And the reason I immediately glued on to him was because I recognized what, what are his great strengths. And they've stayed with me for my entire career. And it's pretty simple and straightforward. Number one, he taught me from day one, the inextricable link between theory and practice or theory and policy. Okay, right. So we're always talking about the ivory tower and international relations theory as being something divorced from reality. And it's anything but that. Theory is simply a simplification of the real world, an attempt to allow us to figure out how the world works. And it's the world that matters the most, not the theory and not the the isms and all of that. Those develop 
out of a desire to understand the problems and the conflicts that are going on in the real world. So that was kind of front and center. He also taught me how to convey the importance of conveying things in clear language, you know, free of all the jargon that you surely as provost come into contact with a lot, even in those nicely clarified research uh, and promotion materials. He taught me that scholars have a, an obligation to convey what they learn in clear terms so that the rest of society can understand what you're trying to say and therefore react to it and do something about it. And then I guess the last thing that I credit John Mearsheimer for is encouraging me to take on dominant views when they appear to be flawed, to take on big arguments, to take on big opponents without fear of you know, retribution or, or being wrong. If you, again, have reason to think that, they, that those views might be wrong, no matter how popular they are. So it sounds like I don't think this is much of a stretch. He was a key mentor of yours. The key mentor, but I was fortunate. Again, I, I feel like luck is the dominant factor here to land at Chicago when he was there. He was the chair of my dissertation and I've remained in close contact with him ever since. But also at the same time, I had other great mentors and Steve Walt, who was uh, at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard now, and Charles Glazer, who's at George Washington University. And it's not like I could assemble those people through free agency. I just got lucky that they were all in the right place at the right time when I was there. Well, a lot of students are, are trying to figure out how to start those relationships. Do, do you remember the moments where you first sort of expressed to John Gee, I'd like to study under you. Or... Oh, it's yeah. funny you say that. I mean, obviously, the first contact came in a, in a seminar, in a course, and I asked questions, and I was always thinking about the material before and after the class, and I'd go to office hours. But the key moment was when I asked Mearsheimer if he would serve as my uh, chair of my dissertation, and his reaction was that, okay, yeah, I'd be happy to do it, but you need to know that you won't get a job because you're, affiliate, you're associated with me and my controversial views. And even if that weren't the case, you're going to have difficulty getting a job in this market, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So he told me all these reasons why maybe not want to study what I was going to study, including the fact that I was studying war and conflict, which in, you know, in the mid-90s, this is still considered the, the post-Cold War moment where war was obsolete, or at least great power war, major power war was considered obsolete, and therefore... You know, he told me, look, don't worry, the real world will always rear its ugly head. And as we see with Ukraine today, unfortunately, that he, he was right about that, too. So I assume at the time you entered the Ph.D. program and given your focus intellectually that you were more or less committed to an academic career. Is that what you were thinking? It's interesting. I mean, I have no idea really what I was thinking. Uh, even to this day, I'm not sure what I want to be in life. But in 1994, I had the previous two years between when I graduated from the University of Wisconsin in the, the spring of 1992 and fall of 94, I was in Washington, D.C. in the kind of policy, international relations policy world. I worked at Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and worked at the Stimson Center, a think tank here in Washington that was just getting started. And I have to admit, I've kind of fled Washington. I fled that immediate day-to-day policy focus because it didn't, I felt even then, even though I didn't really know, unsatisfied with the level of theoretical understanding and explanation. You know, everybody's publishing policy memos and, and it was really about politics, not about 
understanding and analysis and explanation. I'm being too simplistic here, but I recognize that. And I wanted to get out of Washington and away into a more, again, theoretical, but policy driven program. What was dissatisfying about that? the guidance you were giving? Was it times wrong or unfounded? It, or It's an excellent question. I mean, the only thing I can think of, I was working on a project on chemical weapons and the, and the a treaty that, to seek to prohibit chemical weapons. As with nuclear weapons, you know, we have some arms control structures in place. And the people I was working with, who are, again, wonderful people, were very much into the advocacy of arms control, et cetera. In my understanding, they were missing kind of a lot of the realist logic behind state behavior. And that things like arms control agreements were only important or constraining as long as the states that signed up to them were willing to abide by them. So I felt that they were emphasizing, you know, just this advocacy of of arms control without kind of understanding the great power politics, you know, behind it. And again, they was in the the milieu of 1993, 1992, 93, 94, where conventional wisdom, as I alluded to before, was that we were facing the end of history, both the unipolar moment where the United States was straddling the globe as a foremost democratic, peace-seeking country on earth. And that great power war has gone from the system and even great power competition was, you know, there was Bosnia and there were civil wars that were raging, but people were buying into that notion. And oh my gosh, we think about it now. I was an opponent of NATO expansion, NATO enlargement back in the day because I felt it was needless. I felt we actually didn't even need NATO anymore because the Cold War was over and we criticized it. I criticized it. My mentors criticized it because we felt it was needless provocation. And now I can't help but think the chickens are, have come home to roost on that one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So you finish your dissertation and you're off to Notre Dame for quite a few years. Can you remember that transition? So I assume you have been working 24-7 on your dissertation. You finished that piece of work and you had that deep sense of accomplishment. And then, boom, suddenly you have a job that requires all sorts of other things of you. So Tell us yeah. about moment. It was, an inter- it was an interesting transition because actually I first came back to Washington to take a pre-doctoral fellowship at the Brookings Institution, where I finished up my dissertation in a little cubby hole and, you know, nose to the grindstone, but kind of back into that policy world a little bit, which again led me to want to not do that for the rest of my life, even though I understood it was important. Um, I actually took a visiting position at Georgetown in the predecessor program of the security studies program, the NSSB, just as a visiting professor, heavy course load. So I'm finishing up my dissertation, teaching courses, when I get the news that I had gotten the job at, at Notre Dame. That was in the summer of 2001, which of course we get 9-11, two weeks into my first class on introduction to international relations to 150 undergrads. So I had to pretty much throw out my dissertation, put in two weeks on terrorism, learn about terrorism in a way that I could convey some basic knowledge to the students. And it seems like that was an interesting way to be off and running about the world of international relations, beginning of my tenure line you know, career. Now, what are you excited about in your current work? I've been finishing up a book on nuclear weapons and international relations. And and to me, again, a good example of the inextricable link between theory and policy, because fortunately, since 1945, we haven't had a nuclear exchange or nuclear use. 
And yet the relevance of these weapons to international relations, it could be the, you know, the, the most important dimension of international relations since the end of World War II. There's not a lot of evidence on one hand, but still great real world relevance and importance. So you get theoretical arguments about the utility of nuclear weapons and their role in keeping the peace or leading to conflict played out against the real policy developments. So that book was published. I took this uh, administrative position as director of the security studies program. And that, given the pandemic and everything else, has kind of kept me busy administratively. But I will be going on sabbatical this summer, ending my term as director at the end of June. And so right now... For the listeners, we should note that he is now smiling yeah, <laughs> uh, broadly about the prospect of a sabbatical. Yeah, well, it's been four and a half years and it's flown by or it will be four and a half years by the end. I've learned a lot about uh, the university and my colleagues and students and most of it good. And, and it's mostly been a lot of fun and, and successful. And I, I've taken pride in what I've done in the security studies program. But, you know, my, my research agenda has taken a hit. And so I'm in the stage now anticipating a sabbatical. And the goal is to get my research agenda set before I embark on that so that I can hit the ground running. I mean, as you know, Bob, the, a semester of sabbatical, much less a, a year, seems like an eternity when you're buried in all, all your work. But it flies by. Time flies when you're having fun. And so I'm right now kind of developing the questions that I want to pursue, trying to figure out my, my next major project. It will likely still have something to do with nuclear weapons, given the relevance of that topic, whether it's about how the United States in the future will be able to fight conventional wars against nuclear adversaries without triggering nuclear escalation. I was primarily thinking about this in terms of North Korea. Um, had increasingly been working on this vis-a-vis -vis Iran. If Iran someday gets nuclear weapons, what would be the implications for U.S. and its allies in the Middle East? And now, of course, we're seeing it in Ukraine and some fears of, of nuclear escalation that could emerge out of a conventional conflict, particularly if the United States or NATO were to get more involved. So that's where I'm hoping to develop some good, you know, identify some good puzzles and questions to pursue when I have time. You uh, had to learn a lot of different fields out of traditional political science. You have work that's deeply historical in nature. Tell us about that when you enter a space where you know you need to self-teach. How, how do you approach that? Yeah, again, great question. Because I teach a course now on nuclear weapons, and we do things like nuclear targeting calculations, and I'm breaking out basic math. And I want to tell the students in the course that, listen, don't be afraid. It wasn't that long ago where I had to brush off, you know, my math skills and figure this out. And the answer is I did not self-teach. I learned from others, including my, my co-author, Daryl Press, who was teaching a, a course where he had had to learn from some of his mentors and other things. But in the end, most of my knowledge of nuclear weapons technology and the more scientific dimensions of nuclear weapons, which are important for understanding the strategic implications, that's, that's the reason to learn that stuff in the first place. We learn from going out and speaking to scientists, physicists, military experts. As you'll see from the CV in later pages, all the travel that we were able to do, which I miss oh so much, was the key to kind of knowledge creation and my familiarity with this sometimes pretty complex area. Uh, in the end, though, 
I think it's, it's crucial for people like me to learn those topics because they bear on the policy debates and policy decisions, and they bear on the scholarly debates, right? For example, everyone thinks that, you know, many people, I should say, think a nuclear weapon is a nuclear weapon is a nuclear weapon, that they're all equal, you know, and it ignores the fact that some have large yields, some have small yields, you know, some create nuclear fallout, others, depending on how they're used, do not. Uh, some are very accurate. Some are not accurate at all. Different ways that they are delivered from you know one state to another, how they could be delivered. All, all of that really, you know, you need to have some scientific, uh, some some more expert knowledge about the technical details. You've benefited from a long-term collaboration with Daryl over time, and when you uh, reflect on that, I know all of us are interested in what makes a great collaborator? How do these kind of marriages, if you will, evolve over time? And why do they stay together? What does it, in your opinion? I only have an N of one. So as you know, the, my degrees of freedom, my ability to draw conclusions from this, quite limited. And the true, true answer is, I'm not really sure. I mean, I certainly wouldn't want people to think a relationship like that is free of uh, frustration and difficulty and all that. Um, anybody in a marriage knows that a marriage takes work. And so why would it be different as a, a collaborator? But, you know, I think to me, it's a clear example of how two heads are better than one. And, you know, when you're sitting there doing your own research and writing, particularly writing, which is just difficult, you know, you sit back and you try to step outside of what you've just written or read and bring a different perspective to it. But you're doing that in the same brain. Whereas if you have two people and you're on the phone at you know, midnight and you're, try, you're trying to pound out another paragraph of an article that's due in two days, there's an urgency there for collaboration. And you've got a devil's advocate right there. You don't have to play one. And um, I think it's that kind of back and forth. And then we've had a lot of success and we've been able to take our our work on the road and present it to different audiences, academic audiences, government audiences, foreign audiences. And that's just, it's been fascinating to do that with somebody so that when you get back to the hotel, you compare notes. Oh my gosh, how did that go? How was it? I, can't, I couldn't think of doing that work any other way. We've each done some separate work on our own as even during this phase of collaboration, but it's not nearly as fun. Yeah, no, that's a perfect word that I think so many of us over time realize the fun involved in interacting with someone who's interested in the same stuff you are. No question. Well, Kira Lieber, thank you very much for spending time with us. I know you're one of the busiest people in Georgetown, and thank you for these moments together. Thank you. I enjoyed the conversation. Appreciate it.